Hello and welcome to another episode of Shattered Lives, the Irish Daily Star's crime podcast. I'm crime correspondent Michael O'Toole and joining me now is our chief reporter, Paul Healy. Hello, Paul. Hi, Mick. So last week uh, we did our first crime review of the week and we got a very uh, good response to it and we're very happy with it. Paul and I were keen to do it. It just lets us... um, you know, have a bit of space and time to reflect and maybe delve more into stories that we do throughout the week. Because there's sometimes, like we're going to talk to Paul, he's been up and down to Cork the last couple of days. And sometimes we're running around the place and you have so many stories that you don't really have time. You go from one story to the next. Sometimes, sadly, you go from one murder to the next and you really are running around. So this this format allows us maybe to just to talk about some of the cases that have been in the news for the whole week and, and perhaps some of our listeners, some stories that our, our listeners may have was, missed as well. So we're going to start off and we're going to, I think we're going to keep on with this format. We'll do one normal podcast a week. I did a, a I thought it was a very interesting interview with former Garda Commission, Assistant Commissioner Michael O'Sullivan. And then at the towards the end of the week, we'll do this week in review. So this is our, our second week in review. Now, one of the things I'm very interested in talking about in this uh, review is the case of a lady called Simone Lee. Now Paul was in court the last couple of days in court in relation to what is a really shocking case of assault. So Paul you might tell us the background first. Yeah well I mean this is this is a particularly horrendous assault Mick. Um, you know I was making the point that people do get assaulted nearly every day uh, across the country but this was a particularly harrowing uh, case and, and when we got wind of it we, we felt that we needed to go down to Cork and, and give it um, national media attention because what happened to Simone Lee was a was the kind of attack you wouldn't you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy um, and, and unfortunately not the first time uh, that she has been a victim of this type of assault so the a highly unusual case already in that she was um, subjected to an to a a really sustained uh, lengthy attack she was beaten to a pulp kicked and punched and pushed to the ground and she had uh, ammonia acid and boiling hot water poured all over her by a man named Christopher Stokes Um, and and as I said what's surprising about that is that this is not the first time that she suffered an attack at the hands of a man in which boiling hot water was poured over and she was beaten and in the previous incident she was stabbed as well by a totally separate uh, assailant and and when was that attack the the first first attack was in 2016 and that was by her then ex-boyfriend um, so it, I mean, it's it's quite shocking in that. I mean, and I I spoke to Simone after the case today, and she told me that she believed that Christopher Stokes, who was a who was a close, who was a friend, somebody that she had trusted, um, that she believed that Christopher Stokes copied off the previous incident, the original attack, that he had Googled what had happened to her. Because if you Google her, you can see the previous case. He had Googled it and effectively researched what had happened to her and then copycatted the exact same attack on her. Um, But as he told her in the apartment that night, he wanted to finish the job that the other Aegis, as he called him, didn't. Uh, He was going to murder her. He he was going to kill her, he said. And he was going to have her buried uh, in a plot of land. Um, so really shocking and unusual case. This may not be relevant, but I have to ask, because, you know, I'm not saying there was any excuse. I'm just trying to find out, why did he do it? I mean, this is unspeakable. Why would someone subject some some other human being to such a sickening attack? 
it, it's hard to fathom that. And I mean, as I said, um, Christopher Stokes was someone that she trusted and she had a friendship with. Um, when the incident occurred, the, the two of them uh, were in the company of another man, a uh, man Tim- Timothy Fian, uh, who was in his seventies, and and Mister Stokes effectively coerced Mister Fian to bring them to a little shop uh, where they were going to purchase alcohol, Captain Morgan's rum. Um, and in the process of purchasing that alcohol, even on the journey to the little, uh, he was assaulting her. Um, and 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 tr- throughout uh, their drive there and their drive back to the apartment, Miss Lee was being assaulted. Um, now, her rationale for that, her and it was mentioned in court, so I can say this, um, is that Mr. Fian... Uh, Mr. Mr. Fian was somebody who was a farmer with land and um, Mr. Stokes appeared to be trying to uh, get some money from Mr. Fian. He wanted to, I'm just trying to be careful what I, he, he, he was basically having uh, issues financially, Mr. Stokes, the assailant. And uh, Miss Lee told me uh, that it was her belief that uh, Mr. Stokes was trying to effectively get Mr. Fian to give him money and, and and if if she was being assaulted that he might stop the assault by by saying I'll pay you xyz whatever um but it, just to contradict that Mr. Stokes uh and this is evidence that was given in court Mr. Stokes told Mr. Fian uh that he intended to kill him and bury the both of them on his land so and he was charged with and and pleaded guilty to threatening to kill Mr. Fian as well. So Mr. Fian is a victim in this and he gave a victim impact statement in his own right in which he said that he was terrified throughout the whole incident uh, and that uh, the the assailant was a much bigger man than him and he was terrified and petrified and he will forever live with the fact that he was unable to help uh, the victim, Miss Lee, throughout all of this and that he had to witness her being assaulted both in his car and when they were brought back into the apartment. He, he pleaded guilty to that threats to Mr. Fian. What was the charge against against that he, the violence against Miss Lee? Was it assault causing serious harm or assault causing harm? Or? So, as I said, this is this was a very serious case and initially, uh, Mr. Stokes was actually charged with attempted murder, wow. which we don't, we, we don't actually hear about too often, somebody being charged with attempted murder uh, these days. But uh, that that's a very serious serious charge, and he was about to go on trial for that uh, when he pleaded uh, when he, when he accepted a lesser charge of assault causing harm. Now that assault causing harm section three still carries a maximum sentence of life in prison, and he was also facing a charge of arson because he set the apartment on fire, uh, and he was also facing a charge uh, of threat threatening to kill. Um, Mr. Fian and other charges were then taken into consideration. Um, so he pleaded guilty to the arson, the threat to kill, and uh, assault causing harm, thereby sparing um, the state of having to go through a lengthy trial and the victim from having to go through a trial. Um, but nonetheless, today he was jailed uh, for 11 and a half years. Uh, so quite a hefty sentence indeed and the the presiding judge said that this was on the upper scale of severity um and and at the, at, at its absolute maximum as i said assault causing harm um and the incident uh, of arson carry a maximum sentence of life in prison so he gave the headline sentence of um i believe it was 15 years 
and then cut it down to 12 years and then with mitigating factors of a guilty plea and uh, some other minor circumstances I would say in the attacker's favour he cut six months off that sentence so he received 11 and a half years and just to note Mr Stokes has been in prison since the incident in 2021 and it was backdated to that date yeah that's you read my mind about the next question so really 11 and a half years he will do it it years and uh, seven months okay but because it's backdated to 2021 you cut you effectively cut two years off that so it's it's six years and seven months six years six six and a half years effectively he will be free he will walk free and i always i always try to and, and i know you do as well i always try to contextualize if someone gets 15 years I always try and work out because we know you're automatically entitled to 25% remission. You can have weeks shaved off here or there for infractions. There is enhanced remission of 33%, but the minimum he will get is 25% off. So he'll so you're talking he'll be out by 2029, really. Which is extraordinary. And she almost, you know. Um yeah. so that's one thing I always try to do just to contextualize the headline sentence and what you know what they will serve or when they will be out. yeah and, and look a lot a lot of people have thoughts about this and uh, you know since we published the story uh, people have made comments on social media that it isn't good enough it's not long enough um but it's important to stress that the victim in this case miss lee uh she said she was happy with the sentence um she feels that she's a survivor um not she said i'm a survivor not a victim um and she feels she got some form of justice uh, from this um, and she says she wouldn't wish jail on anybody um, but I think it's worth um, we're going to play in a, in a moment just a small clip uh, of an interview I did um, with Miss Lee uh, today uh, where you'll just get to hear her describing uh, in her own words some of what she went through uh, in this horrific attack okay so we'll, we'll listen to that now interrupted you but we were talking about the attack itself and how it started and how it was prolonged for all that time and you, you felt you couldn't get away I couldn't get away yeah. He, I, he wouldn't let me use the bathroom in my own apartment. Yeah. No, I remember saying, please don't just go to the bathroom. No, no, he tried to escape, he tried to make money. He told you to go on your own hands, yeah. which is a disgusting thing. Peeing myself. Then, um, when I was on, like, I remember I was after buying a red kettle in a paddy shop. Yeah. Very distinctive red kettle. And, um, you know, like, the punches and punches and punches. Yeah. I was barely semi conscious. And I was kind of lying on the couch and I was like this way. And I, the pain, I still remember the pain. Boiling hot water down here and down my back. I begged him again, can I please get a t-shirt? I was screaming, crying. No, F yourself. And were you telling him, leave me alone, stop hitting me, that type of thing? But I kept him, please stop, please leave me alone. Sure, no one cares about you. Your own family won't care for it. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill you. No one's going to know the difference. I'm going to bury you on Charleville. You, did you believe it was going to kill you? Yes. Yeah. 100%. There was no doubt in my mind. And when he put the fridge up against the door, was that, from that moment on, was it fear? It was right, like, this what is... am I going to do? Yeah. What? How am I going to escape? My windows are tiny in Fairview President. They only got two small little windows. And the state, I could barely walk over oh. the injuries on my back. Yeah. I don't want to talk about the attack for too long, because I'm sure it's difficult for you to relive it but when he poured the boiling water and the ammonia acid was that excruciating pain oh for you? my god the ammonia acid it's like 
don't when you if when a lady dyes their hair, it's ammonia. Yes. And I can remember the smell and my eyes being bloodshot and three times there's a bottle of ammonia under my kitchen sink belonged to him. Yeah. And he kept three times in my face. I was blind for three days. I couldn't see anything. Yeah. When I made my statement in hospital, Garth had to hold my hand so I could just sign SL. I couldn't sign my name. I didn't think I thought I was going to be blind permanently. You heard her there in her own words, an incredibly brave person. Um, and, and as I said, this is not the first time she's been attacked. She was previously attacked by her ex-boyfriend, Colin Ryan, uh, and he, he received a a, a sentence uh, of nine and a half years with two suspended um, after pleading guilty to intentionally or recklessly causing serious harm to Miss Lee uh, in 2016. And in that attack, he attacked her with hot water and he stabbed her as well. And she received... Uh, a brain injury in relation to that just like she did in this incident as well so she's an incredible survivor and and, and very brave uh, to come forward uh, with this second incident and and to get justice so fair play to her i i don't know paul have you not i'm mean, gonna maybe just looking at it maybe it's something i've been examining more closely because i, I you know we, we, i do not, we do an awful lot of these things but have you not noticed in the last couple of years there have been more horrendous cases of serious violence against women there have. I mean, I, I, I suppose I can't, I, I don't have the expertise to say whether it's on the rise. Maybe statistically it, it, it is, but also I would hope that maybe it's being reported more. You know, and, and Miss Lee is a testament to that in that she's, you know, she's now calling for other victims of abuse to come forward. And you'd hope that maybe there is just more of that, you know, and the, the, I mean, I think the laws on domestic violence and that have become much stronger in recent years. So maybe more people are coming forward than they ever did before. Yeah, and that's a good point because we know that there is now an offence of coercive control. And if you remember, yeah. Agarda was jailed last year. I think was he the first case of coercive control? But it, it was very I think serious. He was, yeah, and yeah. Mm. So he's 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 in custody now. So, and I remember the guards. I think it was the protective services uh, unit who are based in every guard division around the country who deal with domestic violence, sexual abuse, child sexual abuse imagery, all the, the rape, all the, the you know, the personal attacks. And, you know, they were very keen to send out a message from that case that, you know, the guards will listen and the guards will go after anybody in coercive control. So you know, hope, maybe you're right, maybe especially with coercive control that victims and survivors is, <coughs> are coming forward and there will be more justice. But uh, look, what a, what a, what a, a terrible case. Horrendous. Now, I just, I just to move on slightly, um, you've had a busy week. Um, I On Sunday evening, we know that late last week, a, a man called Marius Mamaliga was injured in an alleged assault in Swords in North Dublin on Thursday. Now, he was uh, critically injured after that assault and sadly he died over, the, I think it was on Sunday night he died. On Sunday evening, yeah. I was speaking to a family friend who set up a GoFundMe page to yeah. speak, to, to raise money for the family. And he made a, a few comments, but in between me speaking with him uh, and the paper being published, sadly, Mr Mamaliga died. Now a man has been charged with assault to Mr Mamaliga so we, we, we won't go further than that but you did speak on Monday after uh, Mr Mamaliga's death you did speak to his mother. Yes I, I spoke to uh, Mr Mamaliga's mother Inga um, uh, in, incredible testament to her to speak out and pay tribute to her son uh, really less than 24 hours after he had died in hospital uh, she told me that he, um, she spent three days by his bedside 
while he was in a critical condition and ultimately this decision was made uh, to donate his organs uh, after he passed away. Um, No matter what way you look at this, it's a tragedy that a young person aged 19 has died. Um, As I said, we have to be legally careful. Someone is before the courts uh, in relation to an alleged assault in connection with uh, what what occurred in Swords last Thursday. But uh, just to, I suppose, just give some insight, he was an apprentice, Mr. Mamaliga was an apprentice uh, electrician. Um, uh, his mother said that he had, he was a very independent person and he worked um, uh, in, in, a, in a restaurant in Malahide. He had his whole life ahead of him, she said. Um, and she just described to me how basically they had dinner every evening and then, um, her son would kiss her. It was her t- tradition to kind of kiss uh, three times on the cheek, and she recalls uh, him kissing her on the cheek three times. Uh, he went up for a shower, then he went out. I said he was going out, and and he gave her a kiss and said, "Love you, ma'am." And those were his last words to her. Uh, the next thing, she received a message that something had happened, and she she immediately went up to the scene and discovered that he'd already been taken to hospital. Um. It's just quite harrowing, and, and and to speak to her, just to get an insight into, you know, for a mother uh, to lose a child um, in such circumstances, I just uh, I can't imagine it. I, I, one thing, Paul, I, I there was another incident, a separate incident, in which a man was allegedly assaulted in um, Kilkenny on uh, earlier this week. I think it was Tuesday night, and, and and that man died as well. Now, a man has been charged again with assault in relation. To that case, I spoke to, he was a Polish man called Rafael Jaisna, um, and he was, he just, he just had his 37th birthday on the 6th of February. And I've spoken to some friends of his and they all made, you know, emotional tributes to him. But let me ask you, because one thing I'm asked as a journalist, and you get, you probably get to ask this a lot. Um, are you comfortable talking to loved ones of people who've died? It's, it's, it's never easy, but uh, I, I've, I've felt in over the years, um, because we are a tabloid newspaper, we most often are covering crimes uh, and incidents of this nature. And you're as a crime correspondent, you are quite often the first to hear the information and break the story of an incident that's happened. Uh, and oftentimes I found myself, I, I've done the same, but I found myself attending scenes and um, doing that sort of follow up, so to speak, where you where you find out who the person is, get a picture of them, and you speak to people who know them, and and I felt it was my duty. I think other journalists would say this that it is our duty to to give people a, a an idea of who the victim is and and who they were and who the person is who lost their life, and and we do as a result try to make an effort to speak to their family to their loved ones it's important to do that and we're not always met with uh kindness when it comes to that people don't always necessarily want to talk and you have to understand that this is the worst time in people's lives they're grieving sometimes they're angry the last thing they want is to be contacted by a journalist but nonetheless i do feel it's our duty to put that feeler out there and ask would you like to speak and you, you would be surprised at the amount of times where people have said to us, thank you for contacting me. I would love to pay tribute to my son, my daughter, whatever. Um, and, and, and they want to. And we, so we try 
to offer people that platform. So yes, it is difficult, but I feel it's important for us to do that. I, I, I think it's absolutely vital and it's something that I'm quite proud of. And I, I agree with you. I think, in my experience, now, the reason I was thinking about this for two reasons, you know, I, I was doing, I wrote a, a novel late last year, which I've never uh, uh, hyped on this show, which You've I should, but anyway, that's another day's work. But I was doing a couple of, no, I, I don't tell anybody that I'm an novelist. But anyway, but look, uh, so I was, I did a couple of radio interviews and stuff and, you know, Claire Byrne and that sort of thing. And it was more about me, which I was uncomfortable with because, you know, you and I talk about this, we're not the story. But people do ask, I was asked a lot about what we call death knocks or doorsteps. And I actually think they're really, really important. And I actually think that, you know, from my experience, now, thankfully, you were sort of alluding to this. You do more of these stories now than I do. I Nobody can say I haven't done enough because I have done them for 25 years. And I am more than happy for you to do that because I've done hundreds, probably thousands of them in my time. And they can get to you and they can wind grind you down but I do find from my experience and I've knocked on doors in the most trying of circumstances look and sometimes I have been chased you have as well that that happens but people I think would be genuinely amazed by the number of times you knock on a door and they bring you in they sit you down they give you a cup of tea and they tell you about their loved one and I've come to the realization in my time I think people want to talk about their loved ones and and I'm going to talk about my loved one because I think this has bearing on this. In 2001, my father died in uh, Tunisia. Heart attack, lights out, God love him. Right. And it took us several days to get him home. And I was I was a journalist at the time. And all I wanted to do was talk about it. Now, other family members and other extended families didn't want to talk about it. I wanted to talk about it. And it was a real lesson for me because it just hit home that I can understand why why people talk to me and talk to you and, you know, talk to greats like Conor Fee and doing doorsteps because there is people do want to talk about and you know give memory to and tell the world about their loved one and I think more often than not we're brought in and we're given a good reception people are entitled to react to every way other. but you don't think more often than not people do want to talk more often than not and even if in that moment that horrible moment in time where they're not ready to or 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 able to uh, you'll find that they do come back to you um in fact, I, I'm still having that happen even this week. I'm being contacted by people who want to tell their story uh, long after the fact. Uh, so, I mean, it, it does happen. Um, oftentimes, us journalists can be accused of being in, insensitive. But in those moments, we're really just trying to have a person be remembered beyond a statistic. I think you told me that one of the first year I was in the star. You know, every human being is important. Um you know, no matter what has happened to them or their background, it's important um, for them to be remembered. And that's something I very firmly believe in. And that's one of the things I'm really, I take great pride in, in our work in the Star. You know, we're often accused of hyping crime, but I, I make no bones about this. Every human life that is lost is a tragedy and it is a disaster, right? And we put every human life on the front page. Wherever they're from, whoever they are, whatever their social status is, every life matters and every life is to be remembered uh, you know i'm not going to get into slagging other uh, newspapers but I, I i often look at you know the way other newspapers treat murders you know uh, you, 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 you know of various socioeconomic groups or ethnic groups or whatever and you know 
and some were put in the front page and some weren't. But you can't say that about us. Every death was on the front page because every death counts. And the reason why I'm asking about this is because I give a talk to students a while ago and the first and this always happens it'll happen to you when you when you're old enough like me to give talks right they always you're always giving your talk about journalism and the first question is always the same it's always a version of what's your morality of doing this and I'm starting to get slightly thick by it because I think I'm a moral person I think I'm a moral journalist I think I act with morality I think I treat people decently I'm a hard journalist I go in hard but I I do connect with people and you connect with people uh, and I I am very proud of the way we yeah. we talk to people and we 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 remember the dead. Yeah, you have a good line. I don't know whether you want to say it here on the podcast, but uh, you I, I'll I'll set you up. Go on. You have a good line about sensationalism and about murders. Well, yeah. So right. So yeah. You know, you always get asked about the morality of what we do, and the other one of the other things you always say we're always asked about is we sensationalize murders or we sensationalize crime. And I my answer to that is every murder is sensational. It's wrong and it, you know, and how can we sensationalise a murder? A murder in its own right is sensational because somebody takes somebody else's life. Or look, even that miss, the, the horrible attack on Miss Lee. You know, you've done a fantastic interview. It'll be in the, the Star and, and the Mirror online tomorrow, on Friday. Is that sensationalism? Some people can entirely subjectively say that's sensational, but it's not. It's going to the root of the matter. And what is journalism for us? Journalism is talking to the person. And that's what you did. So, you know, I, I stand over what we do. Murders are sensational. Sensational. We do not sensationalise them because they are sensational in their own right. Right. Very anyway, true. With that in mind, um, uh, one other, I want to, there's a couple of things I want to talk about. One, uh, we've been covering the Jerry Hutch trial, as we know, and uh, you've been doing sterling stuff. And we know that the verdict in that trial is due by April the 17th at the latest. But, there will be another a very important date on the 24th of March in relation to a separate case, but one which was at the time was massive. And that was the case of Graham Dwyer. I, I was thinking about this today. I wonder if we had the pod in 2015, we wouldn't have been able to do what we do with the Jerry Huss trial because we know that it's, it's in front of the uh, special criminal court. So we have a, a certain amount of leeway. And by the way, I covered every day of the, the Graham Dwyer trial. It was humongously stressful. We wouldn't have been able to discuss it and chat about it, but I would have hoped that maybe if we had the pod, we would have been able to do a sort of court, an extended court report, just to tell people what's happened. As we know, he was convicted of the 2012 murder of Elaine O'Hara. Now, he has appealed that, um, and we know that he had a, a serious ruling by the European Court of Human Rights about his phone data, so that went for him in a civil matter, but he's doing a criminal appeal as well, and that was before the Court of Criminal Appeal in December. And basically, he's they're they're trying to allege that the state misused phone evidence against him. But the the decision by the three court, three judge court of criminal appeal is on the twenty fourth of March. So what can happen then? The court can uphold the, the murder conviction, it can quash the murder conviction and order a retrial, or it can quash the murder conviction and let him walk free. So Mr. Dwyer, you know, if it goes his way, he could be out and about by the twenty fifth of March, and that will be massive. <sighs> In, incredible um, yeah it's a long time coming this decision isn't it and I mean it's been debated I think uh, it's been debated now in every court in the land and, and in, yeah. in every uh, chat room in the land um, it, it's interesting um, I don't want to preempt the decision oh I do I, 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 what I'm going to say there wouldn't be a pod if we didn't say it's up to the judges it is up to the judges but what I can say I, I think just speaking to legal 
and law enforcement experts, uh, I think they'd be confident that the the um, Dwyer will still be in jail on the twenty fifth of March. We'll put it that way. Yeah, I, I mean, there there has already been. Um some decisions made in relation to data retention and that and then the government um are trying to enact um changes in the law so that that would, that would allow uh Gardaí to in the future um still be able to retain data um in in relation to their investigations because this caused a whole big problem for for Garda investigations didn't it when it initially um happened uh, and a lot of investigations were halted i mean you know something about that yeah yeah we broke a story about this so it was it was 2018 that Dwyer won his high court case saying that the that the that the the retention of you know it's mass data retention it goes basically every people might know this that at the time phone providers and everything could keep had to keep it for 2 years all data and then the guards could go and make an application from the chief superintendent in crime and security or security intelligence and get access to all the data. And the, the high court ruled here that it was, that was, you know, went against European law and the European court found in, in favour. So they are trying to bring some things in, but, you know, that caused a massive shock. And in one very, very sensitive area of policing, which I've already mentioned it, about the, the fight against child sex abuse material, what is legally called child pornography, which is a horrible phrase. Uh, so there were, I found out that there were 700 men, as a result of the Graham Dwyer case, there were 700 men, all men I'm afraid, who were suspected of downloading and accessing and viewing child sex use material online. And the guards had 700 IP addresses, seven, that's how they get the IP, that's how they find them out. They get the IP address and they go and find out who owns the IP address and they get warrants. But because of that, it effectively stopped. So there were 700 men whose cases, who, who did not have the... The, the knock or the collar because of the of the, the Dwyer verdict. So, you know, it had far-reaching consequences. Now, there have been, I think they've found ways of getting around this. And as you say, there are going to be more laws. But it was it was a very big case at the time. And certainly, I mean, I'll probably be in the, the Court of Appeal on the 24th of March, um, bring back memories of, of Mr. Dwyer. <laughs> so I, I, I await the decision with bated breath, I'll put it that way. We should probably do a pod that day. <laughs> well, actually, do you know what? I, yes, so somebody did... I, somebody did... A, send me a DM saying that they're hoping that we might do and I think this is a great idea we might do uh, before the Hutch verdict comes in we'll do a refresher of all the uh, evidence that the state has had in the case against them I think that would be really good just yeah. to, to lay it out but I think we should do one on Dwyer because listen anybody who remembers that case it was massive it really was it was you know Joe, so there was Joe O'Reilly in 2007 and Dwyer in 2015 and look there have been American documentaries made about Dwyer and all this stuff about his obsession with what he was into and also yeah I think it would be a good idea so you were also over in Carrick and Shannon this week for the case of Dave Mann yeah so this is this is uh I, I just want to talk about this briefly obviously it is still before the courts but um I, I can talk uh, around some of it anyway um so Dave Mann just to for anyone who doesn't know who he is uh, at this stage Dave Mann is the stepfather of Amy Fitzpatrick, uh, and Amy Fitzpatrick is a missing Irish teenager. Uh, she disappeared from the Mias Costa area of Spain um, on New Year's Day 2008, and no trace of her has been found uh, to date. Um, so that that's kind of just how people would know Dave Mahoney is the stepfather of Amy Fitzpatrick, and he is married to, to Amy's mother, Audrey. Um, but uh, in 2021, uh, he was charged with assault in relation uh, to uh, a pensioner 
who lives in the Carrigan Shannon area where Mr. Mahan lives. Um, and he has been accused of that. And since that date, it has been back and forth, back and forth uh, in the court down there in Carrigan Shannon, uh, progressing quite slowly. And, and just generally speaking, people might wonder, because this is in the news and this is in the news and this is in the news and it's not progressing. Uh, generally speaking, the courts across the country have been stalled as a result of covid and there's just the sheer amount of cases have there's a backlog that's that's unprecedented um so when i was in court there this week um it was up for mention again uh, mr mahan and his wife were present and uh, it was stated that um basically mr mahan is looking for disclosure and the dpp has uh, not accepted a, a, his particular application for disclosure in the case so that's stalling matters so it's been put back to may Again, uh, so there's been no plea in the case as of yet, uh, so we don't know whether Mr. Mann, uh, which way he is pleading in the case, and um, the victim hasn't been present in court every time that I've been there anyway so far, um, the alleged victim. So that's all we can really say about that incident, but the reason why it is newsworthy, I suppose, is because um, you know people would know Mr. Mann as being the stepfather of Amy Fitzpatrick, and perhaps someday we might be able to discuss that case separately, um god knows there's a lot to talk about in relation to that but that's just the that's just the context i suppose uh, of why we're covering that story and we'll we'll continue to follow it with interest and to declare an interest i was there uh, the news came out about amy in the first week of january and it was a friday and I, we were in the star and later that day i went over to spain and so i've been involved with audrey man uh, and Dave since then and to clear an interest I uh, wrote a book with Audrey about Amy in 2012 so it's long been a, a case that I've been interested in I just want to raise two other issues very quickly you listened you may have listened I know Paul did to my interview in uh, over on Monday with Michael O'Sullivan former guard assistant commissioner who was at the time of the Regency in charge of the Drugs and Organised Crime Bureau the anti-gangland thing and I asked him about why were there no guardian at the Regency now I have to say Michael has been known as a very good communicator but I was I'm not going to say I was shocked but I was impressed perhaps by how honest and frank he was about why there were no guardian at the Regency and to recap basically they didn't think anything was going to happen and he said the Kinnins didn't have a clue and he also which I find very interesting he said look the Kinnins yeah I named them he didn't you know we're coming in Every couple of days, they were going to loads of uh, do's and events. And we just don't have the resources to follow them everywhere they go. And that also gives the lie. You may hear sometimes about 24-hour surveillance. I think that's a myth, right? I can only think of one man who was under 24-hour surveillance. I won't name him uh, because he may have charges, but he was a very, very serious rapist who was let out. And I think he's back in, but he may have other charges, which I can't name him. He's a Dubliner. Um, and when he got out of prison, the National Surveillance Unit, which Paul will know from the... Um, Hutch trial, the National Surveillance Unit were deployed to monitor him 24 hours a day because he was so dangerous. And But then, you know, they can't do that forever. And a few months later, he carried out another attack. But he just, Michael just basically said, we have scant resources. Yeah. We, we didn't have any intelligence. And just what did you make of that, Paul? I found that fascinating because that is, uh, we continue to get uh, from people, you know, why, why weren't the guards there? That criticism is constantly there. And... I think mm. it's a fair criticism, and it's one. It's, that's why it was a fair question to 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 Michael. Um, but it's the best explanation that I have heard 
um, from someone who was in who was directly involved in policing and at the highest level at that point in time. Um, other officers have given other possible explanations um, as well. It's fair to say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look. I mean, I did speak to one former officer, and he did look. He did make a valid point. You know, looking back, austerity had shafted the guards. There was no money. Senior, a lot of very experienced people had resigned. Morale was on the floor. And maybe that was a contributing factor as well. I mean, Michael did talk about scant resources, so we don't know. But one thing I will say, a couple of guards have been in contact since Michael O'Sullivan's interview came out. And they thought they thought it was an ex. They thought they were, they were really happy that someone spoke so honestly and so frankly and said, this is why. So, yeah, because well, I'll play devil's advocate. Like, I mean, I suppose uh, punters and people maybe, because to be fair, Mr. O'Sullivan has an interest in that he was involved in the highest level of policing at that point in time and, and would have made key decisions like that as to whether um, Kinahan and that should have been watched. Um, but, but people who aren't so much in the know would have just simply said media reports. Um, from media reports, we know that there was an attempt on Jerry Hutch's life in Lanzarote in the December of that year. Gary Hutch had been shot in Spain in September. Uh, and there were fears, legitimately, and the guards did believe that there was a possibility that this could escalate into a gangland, a proper full-on gangland war. So the, the criticism is, if they knew all that, why weren't they watching them? Yeah, and look, I mean, I, I, I broke the story about the mur- murder attempt on Hutch, uh, Jerry Hutch, uh, and then two weeks... 10 days before the Regency, I did a story saying, you know, that the Hutch gang, as Dave Gallagher, the superintendent, give evidence to their existence, uh, were coalescing support in the north inner city and there were fears of violence. So, yeah, look, yeah, that's all fair. But I was just interested by his reaction. Now, just the last point I want to make. We did speak about the attempted murder of Detective Chief Inspector John Caldwell in Oma in County Trone uh, in last week's show. Now, Mr. Detective Chief Inspector Caldwell is still critically ill in hospital. We know there have been a rake of arrests. Some have been, uh, some suspects have been released. The new IRA, what the media call the new IRA, have claimed responsibility. But I was absolutely gobsmacked when I read that four people, four men from the Protestant community, now not loyalists, not, not loyalist tellers. If you remember last week, I did say that there were 12,500 loyalist paramilitaries. These people aren't suspected of being loyalist paramilitaries. They're suspected of being members of an organised crime gang. Yeah. But they are from the Protestant community, which is, I mean, it's making the news. And I was, it, I was completely stunned by it. But it does, there is a nexus clearly between these distant Republicans and organised crime. And that was a real eye opener as well, I think, for a lot of people. But for you, I suppose maybe that's not necessarily a surprise uh, in, in that... Um the waters have got muddied over the years and and and, and there are there have been incidents of this in the past where where it's first blamed on one particular group and then it turns out to be another one entirely um, or, or or even false flag operations would that be a thing you know well well if you look at the at the regency remember the continuity ira or there was a statement from the continuity ira claiming responsibility and we've been through all this about you know even you know a bit of the kalashnikovs and was that an attempt to make it look like it was a paramilitary attack but you know and but it was interesting i was listening to the ps and i had a policing board meeting with uh, elected representatives in the north and the ps and i even though the protestant men had been you know questioned they were still saying no our focus is on the new ira so but there is clearly a nexus and a link between elements of the new ira and criminality
and they just happen to be Protestants. But it was just a big eye opener, and I know all the newspapers up north and media and all lit on that because it is it is one of those raise your eyebrow moments. Huge. Um, no doubt we'll we'll but, continue to follow it and see where it goes. Yeah, but hopefully, hopefully, uh, Mister Caldwell will make a, a full recovery, and I know that a lot of guards have expressed their uh, best wishes for him. So I think that's the pod for this week. I really enjoy this format of, of uh, just me and you chatting and having a chance to review and talk about the cases that we've been on all week. And you know the one thing about this, Paul? I always say this, Sunday night, I go to bed and I wake up and I, and I go, when I wake up in the morning, what'll have happened? And you know, do you ever think this, that, you know, we'll be sitting there on a Monday and by Friday we have would have covered maybe 10 big cases? Yeah, I mean, it's it's just, you just don't know what's going to happen. This week is a prime example of that being all over the country. You just never know. Um, uh, sadly, uh, crime never sleeps and it never stops, and there's all sorts of things uh, to cover. But yeah, never a dull day. Okay, and listen, um, we're again very heartened by the messages we're getting from uh, our, our, our listeners. We really enjoy it and we really enjoy the interacting with people. So again, uh, we have a few more pods planned. We're going to keep this going. Anybody has any ideas or anybody has any uh, you know, c- criticism, good or bad, there's no problem. You, you, we're all available on Twitter, publicly and privately. So you know, <laughs> keep them coming and we'll, we'll talk again soon. Thanks very much, everybody. Thank you.